presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our sixth in our series on Better Than I Deserve, and we're looking at a second look at the uh, grace of God, and today I've entitled our session The Ins and Outs of God's Effectual Call. Last week we began to really talk about that just by way of quickie review. Remember that... uh, uh, the man and the woman were created in God's image. Uh, you find that in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, something significant happens that affects all of us, and what's that? The fall, the fall into sin. And uh, as a result of that, uh, there's something happened, as it were, genetically to our spirits, and all of the human race has been, since then, adversely affected. In other words, when we are born into this world, when I was born into this world, when you were born into this world, when that sweet little baby uh, that you have was born into this world, when that sweet little grandbaby that you have or great-grandbaby was born into this world, they came into the world with a problem. And the problem is sin. And if you don't think, if you if you think that is a sweet little innocent thing that you're looking at, just give them a little bit of time, because uh, the first time you don't uh, feed that little girl uh, just right on time, or the first time you cross that little boy, and he wants to do something else, you'll see that sinful nature. You'll see that head rise up, and you think, my goodness, where did that come from? Well, it all came back from Adam. That's where it. Uh, that's where it originated. And that's what we call total depravity. Uh, Now, that's not a term that the Bible uses. That's a term that theologians use. Uh, Very often, uh, since this this sounds so strange to many ears, uh, it's also referred to in some circles as radical corruption. Uh, By radical... uh, the, uh, the prefix in radical comes from the, uh, I think it's the Latin word radix, and uh, it means uh, the root. Uh, we are corrupted down at the root level. That's, uh, that's what that means. Every part of our personality has been adversely affected by sin. But God has done something about that. And what God has done is he has... Uh, what we started talking about, uh, I think last week, is, uh, is unconditional election. Now, I know this uh, makes the hair on some people's uh, arms kind of stand up a little bit on the back of your neck. Unconditional election, where God chooses people that he is going to save. Uh, and we began to talk about that, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more and some of the implications of that uh, today. Who are these people that God chooses to save? Well, if you look in your notes, and again, this is just by way of review. We talked about this in detail last week. Uh, In the left-hand column of your notes, that passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, but we ought, Paul writes, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, 
Now remember, he's writing to believers, believers in Christ, and he says, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved, and then tells us how. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So God has chosen the people for Himself, and He didn't, <clears throat> and He chose them way before Adam and Eve were ever in the garden. Now, if you'll notice in the right-hand column of your notes, the, the second passage that's listed there, Romans chapter eight, verses twenty-nine and thirty. Notice it says, "For those God foreknew, that is, God, those with whom God was intimate." before time ever started. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That is, God's intention is to restore this distorted image. Notice, when man was created, that he bore, the man and the woman both bore the image of God. They reflected God. They represented God, but because of sin, that image was marred. The ability to represent God was totally lost. The reflection, seeing God in people, is still there, but that is, <clears throat> it's very distorted because of sin. And what God intends to do, and what God is doing, is that He is restoring that image in all of His people. We are being transformed. Believers are being transformed slowly, sometimes seemingly imperceptibly, into the image of the Lord Jesus, who himself is God. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. And we said, this is kind of the way it works. Paul talks about uh, 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 an unbreakable chain here in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. An unbreakable, God's unbreakable chain of salvation. It has five links in it. God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, God's call, what we talked about last week is the effectual call, uh, God's justifying, we'll begin to get into that today, we'll at least open the door to it, where God declares or pronounces people righteous. How does He do that? We're going to talk about that. And also, uh, God glorifies people. Now notice that foreknowledge and predestination took place back in eternity. God had already determined what He was going to do and with whom He intended to do it. Uh, ultimately, also in eternity, God will glorify His people. And notice in the passage that we just read, what verb tense is used when He said he also, those whom He justified, He also glorified. What verb tense is that? That's the past tense. In the mind of God, it's already done. Just as surely as He has foreknown and predestined His people, they are, they are absolutely going to be glorified. So what that leaves us, and this is what we're going to be talking about some more today and uh, the justified part more so next week, in terms of time and space, God effectually calls His people to Himself, those whom He has foreknown and predestined. Now how does God do that? That's what we want to discuss. And then how is it if the word justify means to declare righteous or to pronounce righteous, how can God possibly pronounce a sinner 
a righteous person. How can God say, you know, Billy, I declare you to be righteous? Or Anita, how, how can God say to Anita, I declare you, I pronounce you as righteous? Well, the Bible tells us how that, how that can, uh, can come to be. And we want to, uh, we want to talk about that. We've seen over the last few weeks, we've seen it certainly prefigured in the Scriptures that when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered, they covered themselves with vegetation in order to hide their own nakedness. But was that sufficient as far as God was concerned? No. So what does God do? He clothes them with animal skins, not with wool, but with animal skins. And the only way you get a skin is you have to kill the animal first. So what we see right there at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 is we see substitutionary sacrifice already. Now we don't understand it fully. It's not explained fully. But remember, the Bible is an unfolding revelation. Adam and Eve didn't fully understand that. Uh, Abraham didn't fully understand it. Moses knew more than the others did, but Moses didn't understand. It's not until we come to the New Testament and we see God reveal fully and finally in the person of His Son and what Jesus did that we really have an understanding of this whole issue of substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, Abraham practiced uh, sacrifice. Remember, God woke up Abraham in the middle of the night one night and said, take Isaac, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and offer him up to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham got up. He and that boy headed out. Isaac was probably somewhere about 15 to 17 years old. They headed out toward Mount Moriah. They got to the base of the mountain. Abraham turned to his servant and said, you wait down here. The boy and I are going to go up uh, to the mountaintop. We're going to worship, and we are going to come back. He was confident that if God made him kill that boy, sacrifice the boy, God had already promised that all these offspring were going to come through Isaac. So Abraham figured, God's just going to have to raise the boy from the dead if we do that. So you remember they get up there, get it all prepared. Uh, Isaac could have resisted. He was old enough to do that. And Abraham, it would have been hard for Abraham uh, to subdue Isaac. But Isaac willingly allowed himself to be tied up by his father. Abraham pulls out the knife, is ready to do the sacrifice, and God stops him. And then there's a rustling in the brush behind them. And a ram is caught by the horns in the thicket. And God tells Abraham to take that ram and to substitute it for Isaac. There's a, another picture of sacrificial, of, of substitutionary sacrifice. God, uh, when He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and all of the laws uh, that, that were going to rule the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, one of the things that God also gave was the pattern for the tabernacle. And all of the ceremonial law, how you were to perform this sacrifice or that sacrifice, a mobile worship center. And can you imagine what it must have been like on the Day of Atonement when you literally have hundreds of thousands of people gathering to this spot, bringing all of these lambs to be slain. It, just, it, it must have smelled awful. It must have been a mess just to get around there. Uh, I know it's getting near lunchtime, but there just had to be blood everywhere. What an awful, awful mess. And it, and it was supposed to be gory. 
because it was a it was a picture of the way God views our sin, that our sin is serious and our sin is offensive to God and something serious has to be done to take care of that. But what we discover, the more we read, even in the Old Testament, is that the, the sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, were not sufficient. In the first place, the animals don't really correspond to us. If, if someone, if I need a sacrifice for my sin, I need something that corresponds to me. And a, a goat or a sheep doesn't do that, even though I act like a goat or a sheep sometimes. It still doesn't, uh, it doesn't qualify as something that's really substitutionary. And in fact, the scriptures are clear. Uh, the Old Testament writers realize that. Notice the passage there from Psalm 51, <clears throat> verses 16 and 17, where David writes, and incidentally, this is in the context after his one-night stand with Bathsheba in which she subsequently became pregnant. And rather than dealing with his sin, uh, he tried to uh, cover it up. And in covering it up, he finally got to the point where he saw to it that Bathsheba's husband was murdered. It's in that context that David prays this prayer. Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Sacrifices were for sin. Burnt offerings were uh, like thanksgiving offerings. They were saying, thank you, praise you, Lord, that kind of thing. He said, you don't, you don't delight in sacrifice. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You will not take lightly. And notice what the author of Hebrews writes about these Old Testament sacrifices. Now clearly God had specified these things, but those sacrifices were a picture. They were symbolic. Uh, they were what very often the Bible refers to as a shadow. There's, uh, if, if you think about it, of course, this is kind of a, a gloomy day today, not a lot of shadows around, but you, th you think in terms of shadow and reality. Uh, if I were standing here with the, uh, with the sun behind my back, there would be a shadow here in front of me. Well, if you looked at, the, if you didn't see me, but you looked at the shadow, you could, you'd probably say, well, that, that's, that's got to be, uh, a human being, two legs, could be a mannequin, I guess, um, unless I start moving around and say, no, it's not a mannequin, it's moving around. Uh, that's the shadow, but you, you couldn't tell what kind of clothing I was wearing. Uh, you couldn't tell any of those things. But if you look at me, you see the reality. Um, same thing with photographs. You look at the pho a photograph of someone, that's, the, that's like looking at the shadow. You see the picture. And you know, when, uh, when, the, when our son-in-law came back from this uh, second time over in Iraq, and you know, when he, when he arrived out here at Fort Benning, my daughter, was, uh, his wife, was out there to meet him. Well, let me tell you, she's got tons of pictures of Bill, but she wasn't standing out there looking at that photograph of Bill. She was looking for his face when he got off, that, off the bus. They had landed in Macon and then had driven over here. She wasn't interested in the shadow. She was interested in the reality. And the author of Hebrews talks about that. Notice in Hebrews 10. He says, The law is only a shadow 
It can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they have not have stopped being uh, offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They just don't correspond to us. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you prepared what for me? A body. Now, what do we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate what's known as the Incarnation. Most of us like to eat chili. You go to the grocery store and you buy a can of chili, and the can you buy is chili con carne. What is chili con carne? It's chili with meat, chili with flesh. When we celebrate the Incarnation at Christmas time, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the fact that God took on meat that he took on flesh, that he became a human being. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Why a body? Because that does correspond to me. See, what Jesus said, well, you know, couldn't, uh, if I could talk Billy into it, why couldn't I get old Billy to be a sacrifice for my sins? Well, see, Billy's got the same problem I do. He's a sinner too. So it wouldn't work. You know, if, if, he, if he were sacrificed, then it'd be for his sins and I'd still be in the same boat. So we need, we need some kind of sacrifice that's a perfect sacrifice that doesn't have any sort of sin at all, but that corresponds to us in every way. That's the reason that when Jesus came, when Christ came, he didn't come in the form of an angel. He didn't come to help angels. He came in the form of of a human being. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making here. He says we have been made holy. We, believers, have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you've got these Old Testament sacrifices just year after year after year after year after year. They didn't accomplish anything. Oh, they made folks ceremonially clean so we could, they could fellowship with each other. But it didn't do anything with the guilt. It didn't take care of, it didn't assuage their consciences in any way. It didn't deal with the real guilt issue. And it just, and in fact, it was a constant reminder of what ungodly, dirty, rotten sinners I am. But when Christ came into the world, his sacrifice was once, and it was for all these people. And not only did it, does it cleanse the conscience, but it provides eternal redemption, as we shall see. Notice, and it's, and it's all tied to faith in Christ. In fact, we're going to see that in a great deal of detail in the next session. But what I want us to look at right now, and I, we concluded our session with this last week, is the whole issue of fairness. Say, this just doesn't seem fair. It just doesn't seem fair that God would save some and wouldn't save us. After all, God is love. That's right. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says that God is light. Now, light means purity, holiness. 
And we know from the scriptures that God can't tolerate sin in his presence. So you've got, uh, it's not a tension in the Godhead at all because uh, it's, it's, it's true of God's character. God is love, but God is also purity. God is also holiness. So how do you deal with the whole issue of fairness? Doesn't, that just doesn't seem fair that God would save some and, and not save others. So how do you, oh, well, when we talk about what's fair, what, is, what does it mean, what does the word fair mean in the first place? Yeah, okay, just, that's, uh, that we, we could use the word, when we, when we, when we say just, uh, uh, seems like it's uh, according to the rules, maybe you could say that. Uh, you ever tried to play Monopoly using sorry rules? Rules for the game, sorry, this doesn't work. Uh, you know, we could say, there are a lot of meanings for fair. Uh, the weather, you know, how is it outside? The weather's fair. Uh, how does she look? She looks fair. Well, that may mean she's got a clear complexion. It also may mean on a scale from one to seven, she's about a three or a four. You know, it can mean a lot of things, but in this, in, in what we're talking about here, fair, is God fair? We're talking about it just doesn't it just doesn't seem like it's right. It seems to kind of violate some kind of rules. Does God have a, a different rule uh, for different people? And the truth is, well, let's look at this passage because I think it will really help us to see that. If it doesn't, it'll confuse us even more. Uh, the passage from Romans chapter nine, verses ten and following. Now, what Paul has done up through Romans chapter eight is he has given a, um, a marvelous outline of God's salvation and what God has done in Christ. But then he comes to the issue of, of God's sovereignty, and that's what this passage is all about. And remember, when we say God is sovereign, what do we mean? We mean God can do what he wants to, when he wants to, where he wants to, how he wants to, and he can do it exceptionally well. The only thing that God cannot do, the scriptures tell us, is that God cannot lie. He can't violate his own character. So let's see if this passage helps us just a little bit to understand this whole issue of what we're talking about here in terms of God calling his people to himself. Rebecca's children <clears throat> had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, now... Rebecca did have twins. Anybody remember what those kids' names were? I'll give you one of them. Jacob. Who's the other one? Esau. That's right. Who's the older? Esau. He's born first. Remember, he's, Esau's a hairy kind of guy and uh, apparently kind of red hair. And, uh, and Jacob was a real slick kind of guy. He liked to hang around the tent with mom. Uh, Esau was the big hunter. And, of course, he had his dad's heart and all that kind of stuff. All right, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she, that is Rebecca, was told the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob just as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Whoa, can you believe that's in the Bible? Now there was a, 
There's an old preacher from back in the, uh, uh, let's see, late uh, 19th century named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's a great Baptist preacher, uh, preached at the London Tabernacle for years and years. And uh, there were one of, one of my favorite stories about him is, uh, and this was one of his favorite texts, incidentally. He preached on this a lot. But anyway, he was, he was preaching this, and uh, he got to that section, and he just waxed and waned and uh, just really waxed eloquent on the, on the subject. And on the way out, uh, he did what most preachers do, you know, stand in the back and get your hand pumped, and people say nice things, and you take them as, as well-intended. And there was a lady who walked up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I have real problems with, with what, what this says right here. I just don't understand how God could hate Esau. And Spurgeon's response was a classic. He said, you know, it's never bothered me that God hated Esau. He said, what I don't understand is how, could, how God could love Jacob. How could God love Jacob? The schemer, the deceiver. But see, God had chosen Jacob, not Esau, but he'd chosen Jacob. How does it say here? Not on the basis of anything that they had done, good or bad, because at the time God had made that choice, neither one of these boys had even been born. Now let's keep going. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? See, that's kind of what we're addressing. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, our works, but it depends on what? On God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now notice, well, this, now, I hope you brought your rubber bands, because if you're wearing socks, they're going to want to roll up and down right now. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now notice what God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Now what purpose is that, Lord, did you raise up Pharaoh? That I may display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Hmm. So God raised up Pharaoh to show the world how powerful God was. And then notice what he says, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. That would have been Moses, who was a contemporary of Pharaoh. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. That would have been Pharaoh himself. One of you will say to me, well, why then, uh, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? And notice Paul's classic response, but who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why'd you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes? A vase, a nice kitchen bowl, and some for common use? A spittoon, a slop jar, some of you remember slop jars what if God choosing to show his wrath and to make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory even us whom he also called 
not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Fairness. It's not, people say, it's not fair. It's just not fair. And what's the answer to that? That's correct. It's not fair. It's fair. Now, if God were to have treated Moses and Pharaoh exactly the same way and gave them both what they deserved, that would have been fair. And what was it they both deserved? They both deserved his judgment and condemnation. If God were to give all of us what we deserve, what we've earned as sinners, what is it that God would give us? Judgment, condemnation. See, that would be fair because getting fairness is getting what you deserve, getting what you've earned, playing according to the rules. But in His mercy and grace, God has called out a people for Himself and He doesn't deal with them in fairness. He deals with us in grace. That is, He doesn't give us what we deserve. But how can God do that and remain holy? I mean, how's God going to deal with His reputation? After all, He is God. And somebody's going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. How are you going to let old Billy slide now, Lord? How can you possibly let... And, and Susan, how can you let Billy and Susan slide? You know, and, and judge these folks over here. And God's simple answer to that is in the cross. Because what God does is He takes all of the sins of all of His people and place those sins on the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what did Jesus get? He got judgment, condemnation. He got death. He got all of those things. And the penalty that was due me and you, if you belong to Christ, were meted out to Him and God dealt fairly in this respect. God showed no mercy on His Son. He showed no grace on His Son. Jesus, as He's hung suspended by, from the cross, rejected by men, and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there only came back silence. For the first time in all of eternity, these persons of the Godhead who always had been face to face and had perfect fellowship, perfect communion, and now that fellowship was broken. And why was that fellowship broken? Because Jesus had become the sin bearer for His people. And God dealt fairly with Christ. He gave Christ what He deserved as the sin bearer because taking on my sin and the sin of all of God's people, that's what Jesus deserved at that time. And what does God do for us? He takes all of the perfection of His Son, the Lord Jesus, and all of the righteousness that He was, that He was and is, and He puts that to our account, clothes us with His own righteousness so that when He looks at us, yes, we're still sinners. The only difference in us is we're just saved sinners. But He sees us not in our own righteousness or in our own self-righteousness, but He sees us clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. And that's what 
justification is all about. And that's what we're going to be talking about even more so next week. Notice the passage in your notes in that left-hand column from Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. We're talking about the, the, uh, the inadequacy of animal sacrifices, the inadequacy of the law to deal with, with the problem. See, there's nothing wrong with the law itself, the Ten Commandments. That, I mean, they came from God. They're as good as God is. But the problem is, is the, the law cannot bend. The law shows no mercy. All the law can do is judge and condemn. You either meet the requirements or you pay the penalty, and the penalty is separation from God. And so notice what it says in this passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, for what the law could not do. The law could not make us righteous. All the law, was, could, all the law could do is point out and say, Bradshaw, this is where you're an utter failure. So, okay, I, I'm a failure. Now, what do I do about that? The law has no answer. The law has no response. The law has no mercy. The law has no grace. All it can do is condemn. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Well, how did God do? What did He do? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now notice, Jesus was, didn't have sinful flesh. It was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on our humanity, but He did not have the sin nature that we have. If He had, when He died on the cross, He'd have been dying for His own sins. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement, the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, that's what Christ did. Now, how, how is it that God goes about this whole business we... we we, we're beginning, we don't have it yet, but we're beginning to get a little bit of a grip on the idea that God did choose His people before the foundation of the world, that He foreknew them and predestined them. We say, I don't fully understand it maybe, but I, it, it, it is apparent. That's what it says. So okay, I'm, I'm going to take it for that for right now and try to understand it more. Now, how is it that with God having done that, how does He bring people to himself. And we looked, talked last week about the two kinds of calls. That there's the general call of the gospel. All come to Jesus and he'll forgive your sin. That's true. Uh, any, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's absolutely true. The only problem is what? Is that nobody wants to come. Nobody wants to call out. Why? Because the Bible says that the, the heart of the unbeliever is hostile toward God. That the unbeliever's mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. That Romans 3 says there is a tendency away from God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek God. So the call of the gospel is a bona fide call. The problem is with us. And as we just read, the law can't solve the problem. So what does God do? God, by His Spirit, as the effectual call. He, he brings about the effectual call. That is, God effects something in our lives. He causes something to happen. God has to take the initiative. If God were waiting on us, 
we'd still be waiting. Uh, most of us have seen that, uh, that picture. I don't remember who the artist was that painted it. But anyway, it's a picture of Jesus in the garden. And he's standing at this door. And if you look real closely, you see that there's no doorknob on the door. Have you ever seen that picture? There's no doorknob there. And people say, well, that, that represents uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Well, from what we're beginning to understand that the Bible says about human nature, apart from a relationship with God, is Jesus could stand there and knock till his knuckles were bleeding and we would not open that door. In fact, we'd be on the other side of the door piling furniture up against the door saying, there's no way he's getting in here. What we don't realize is that the Holy Spirit is down in the basement and he has set the house on fire. And he changes our lives. He invades our lives. See, that's what God does. He comes in and he invades our lives. He regenerates us. He brings us back to life. And when he does all of a sudden we see ourselves for the sinners that we are. We see Christ for who He is, that He is God come in the flesh and that His work is exactly what we needed to deal with our sin. And we cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me and save me. And what does God do? Just that. See, He's the one who takes the initiative. Notice there's a, there's a, uh, a passage, uh, we're familiar, most of us, with the story of Nicodemus, that's where we get the, uh, in John 3, where we get the term born again. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. But look at a, from a passage which, with which we are less familiar. is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This time it's from the New American Standard Version. And notice what he says. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It says, according to His great mercy, He's done what? He's caused us to be born again. Notice, what is the cause of the new birth? It's Jesus working in our lives. He, he invades our life. We looked last week at the story of the Apostle Paul. At that time, he was Saul of Tarsus. When he was headed to Damascus, is it was, was it because he was going to go seek the truth about Jesus and say, you know, I think I may go on a mission trip sometime? No! He was going up there to put Christians in jail, to torture Christians, to even kill Christians, and had the blessing of the Jerusalem hierarchy in doing it. He was on his way. He'd even heard Stephen. He was holding the coats when they had stoned Stephen to death. And here's Paul, uh, Saul, he's on his way to do all these dastardly deeds to Christians, thinking he's serving God. And what does God do? He just stops him right there on the way to Damascus, invades his life, effectually calls Saul to himself. And what happens to Saul? He becomes a new person. It says he immediately went out and preached Christ. All of a sudden, all those passages in the Old Testament that had said all those things about the Messiah. Now they had a brand new meaning. Now they had an object, and that object was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That's what happened. Notice the next passage from Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Now how does He save us? 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth. He caused us to be born again and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. What God does is when, uh, when He regenerates, when, when the effectual call comes, when God invades our life by His Spirit, we're going off in this direction, we don't give a rat's whisker about anything, and God just stops us in our tracks. And what He does then is He regenerates us. To regenerate means to bring to life. He brings us to life. What is our, what is our condition spiritually before we come to know Jesus? We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not sin sick. It's not if you just reach out and take the medicine, you'll be okay. No. You can't, dead people can't reach out and take any medicine. They don't, they don't even trust the doctor. They need to be regenerated, brought back to life. And when God brings us to life, He gives us two things immediately. He gives us faith and He gives us repentance. Notice. The passage is here. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace. Now, you, could, you ought to be able to quote this one. For it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. You can't be saved apart from faith. You just can't. And remember, the important thing about faith is not that you have faith. The important thing about faith is the object of, your, of our faith. Now, what is the object of our faith? You know, if you got faith in Buddha, uh, let me tell you, faith is not going to help you. It's got to be faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, the, that's what he's saying here. For it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. What does this say about the faith that we express to God that we really believe that Jesus is who we say he is? Where did we get that faith? From God Himself. It's a gift that God gives us. When He brings us to life spiritually, He grants us faith. That's what that passage is saying. Notice the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Uh, Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles where, uh, I used to think the epistles were the wives of the apostles, but obviously an epistle is a letter. And uh, Paul is writing to a young uh, preacher boy named Timothy uh, who... He sort of mentored Timothy. But notice what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 5. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. When God brings us to life, he grants us faith, he grants us repentance. And what do we do immediately when God brings our dead souls to life? We cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me. We change our mind. The word repent means to change your mind. I change my mind about the way I'm living. I'm going in the wrong direction. That's repentance. And yes, I trust in Christ. I can't save myself. I can't pay for my own. I don't want to pay for my own sins because I know what that means. There's only one way I could do that. But I believe that Christ has paid for my sins. And when that happens, what God does is He justifies us. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. God declares us righteous. How is it that God can all of a sudden say, Bradshaw, he bangs down his gavel, he says, you are hereby acquitted of your sins, I declare you righteous. It's because all that sin of mine has already been paid for in the person of his son, Jesus. And all of the righteousness of Jesus is imputed or accounted to me and to you if you know Christ. We're going to talk about justification next time. Uh, look at, the, uh, look at the, uh, the summary just for a moment, please. Um, God's salvation, of which effectual calling is an integral part, is based solely on God's grace. It's not related whatsoever to the uh, issue of fairness. If God, again, if God is fair, giving us what we deserve, no one will ever go to heaven because that's what, that's what we deserve. But God doesn't deal with His people in fairness. He deals with His people in grace. Regeneration and repentance and faith are not the cause of God's call of us. It's not because we express faith in Christ, because we repent of our sins that God finally calls us to Himself. It's just the opposite. It's because God has effectually called us, because He's brought us to life that we are even able to express faith in Christ and to repent of our sins. He's the one who gives us the ability to do that. And when we trust in Christ, God gives us the very perfect righteousness of Christ. He acquits us of our sin. And as we shall see, He not only deals with us and acquits us of our sin, but even puts his arm around us and adopts us into his family. Praise be to God for his great, great salvation. Father, thank you so much again for your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness. Lord, it's just hard for us to get our minds around what you've done. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.